Bible, just raise your hand. Stephen's up. He's got some Bibles in his hands. He'll bring them so you can follow along with us. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you for this time this evening, Lord, and we thank you for your love and grace and this opportunity to open up your word. And Lord, I want to pray for Gabe and Aaron as they're on their vacation on their way down to Florida or in Florida, Lord, just relaxing. Pray, Lord, for restful time for them. They do so much in our church and, and so committed to the ministries here, Lord. And so we just pray you'd, you'd bless their vacation, Lord, bless them as they, they rest, Lord, and uh, Draw close to each other and close to you, Lord God. We thank you for uh, just this opportunity, Lord, to be in your word this evening, Lord, that you've given us your word to give us life and how to live godly lives, Lord. And, and so, Lord, we just want to learn from you. We pray that you'd give us attentive ears to hear from you, Lord, what you have to teach each one of us tonight. Father, give us not only information but application, I pray, in our lives as well. So we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Throughout the, the studies in the book of Isaiah, we've had the opportunities to, to see the deity of Jesus Christ. Many opportunities. Picture Jesus here and picture Jesus there. And, and we've seen him over and over again through the chapters. But none, none like we are going to see this evening and on through the next several chapters over the next few weeks. I want you to understand, this was written some 760 years before Jesus was born. 790 years before you know, his ministry. And so we're seeing Jesus, the prophetic words of what Jesus would, would do, what, what, what would happen, all these things coming in our study this evening. So we begin now with verse 1. Jesus is speaking, saying, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. So Jesus is calling the world to pay attention. He, he's prophetically making the reference to his human birth being called from the womb and being named by God while still inside his mother's womb. Now, of course, we're well familiar with history, not only because of Christmas, but because Isaiah's already mentioned it in chapter 7 and in chapter 9, not chapter 7, verse 14, prophesied of Jesus coming to this earth. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and we shall call his name Emmanuel. Then the well-known prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But then we can move ahead into the New Testament in, in Matthew's Gospel. And the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream in Matthew 1, 20 and 23, and telling him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, uh, for which is conceived in her of the Holy Spirit. And he says that she shall bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And, and Matthew goes on to write, So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. But Jesus, way back here in Isaiah chapter 49, says, The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. So we get the, a prophetic word that, that Jesus is coming to, to this earth. In verse 2 he says, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand he has hidden me, and made me a polished shaft in his quiver he has hidden me. So much in this one verse alone. Now we know that Revelation chapter 1 verse 16 
Speaking of Jesus, it says, And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with strength. Revelation 2, verse 16 of Jesus, Jesus saying, Repent or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 19, 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that, it, that with it he should strike the nations. In other words, Jesus' very mouth, the words, is like a, like a sword. It brings judgment. It brings, brings judgment to the people, but it also brings life to people. You know, the word of God is life. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce our hearts. Now, what does it mean here in verse 2 when we read, In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. What does it mean that, that, that the Father has hid Jesus? Well, it's possible that this refers to Jesus' life before he began his public ministry. At the age of 30, he was hidden who he was. Now, the, the Gnostics that were messed up made up stories about Jesus' early life as a child. That, oh, when he was young, he, you know, he was with some other kids and they all made clay, different animals out of clay. But Jesus' animal was a bird and, and he made out of the clay and he brought, breathed life into it and it flew away and... It's hogwash. You know, it's just a story, a fable. Because, again, we don't know much about Jesus' early life. Just a few things. When he was in the temple and, and at, you know, as a young age and he was doing the Father's business there. Just very few things. But I think this, this verse speaks more than just that time of, of concealment, of being hidden. I mean, it would be, you know, thousands of years before Jesus was born. See, Jesus existed always existed. He existed in eternity past, but made only sporadic appearances in the Old Testament. He would come as the angel of the Lord. And on rare occasions, he would show up to speak to Moses face to face or wrestle with Jacob. So the Father hid Jesus. Jesus many times said throughout his ministry, my time has not yet come. You know, uh, uh, you know, my time has not yet come until that time finally came for him to be revealed. We know Palm Sunday. We allowed them to worship Him as King. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, verse 3, Jesus speaking says, And He said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Here is the Father speaking of Jesus' Son, saying, You are my servant, who I'm going to be glorified. Now, calling Him a servant is, is, is a, a title that Jesus would be known for, even by the early church. You know, remember when Peter and, and uh, was preaching to the crowds that had gathered after he and John had healed the lame man by the temple gates. Acts chapter 3, verse 13, Peter said this, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied his pres- in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. He calls him his servant Jesus. Later in that same sermon, Peter told him in verse 26 of Acts chapter 3, for you first, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And then also we know Peter and John, when they were released from prison, disciples got together and they prayed to the Father. Listen to their prayer. This is found in Acts 4, 27 through 30. They pray, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. They pray, Now look, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word, 
by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so uh, we, we see all the references to him being the servant of God, you know, and have to do with his obedience and really his obedience to, 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 to the death, even death on the cross. Now you may say, well, why does it say in verse 3, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified? If this is speaking of Jesus, why, why does it say Israel? Well, two reasons. First, because the Messiah comes from Israel. I mean, he, Jesus was, was Jewish, okay? And, and he's a representative of the nation. Secondly, remember Jacob's name means conniver. You know, uh, uh, you know he was you know, kind of sneaky. While Israel means governed by God. And so Jesus much better fits the description of Israel governed by God. Even better than Israel did. In fact, the dictionary defines govern as to guide, direct, control all actions and behavior of those under authority. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus said, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Jesus was, was governed by his Father. He was guided. He was directed. He, he controlled all of his actions and behavior. He was under the authority of the Father. In the same way, we as believers, we're, we're under the authority of Jesus Christ to, to guide all of our actions, all of our behaviors. And we must allow Him to direct our daily lives, you know, from our words to our deeds to our very thought life, to do everything that we can uh, to please Him. I mean, that, that's the reason that we live, to please the Lord and to not do those things that displeases the Lord. You know, there's things in life, well, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. You know, you, you, it's sin. Yeah, it's sin. But, but number two, it displeases the Lord. That's why we shouldn't do things. Again, look, now look at verse 4. It says, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Now again, Jesus is speaking. He says, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Now, it might seem kind of disturbing to think that Jesus is saying, I labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing. But remember, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he had been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus went through the same temptations, the same struggles that, that, that we do, yet Jesus never sinned. Now, I can't imagine the stress that Jesus went through by choosing to do God's will. Knowing the cross that was before him. Knowing what, what would be on him. The sins of the world would be placed upon his shoulders. Luke chapter 22 tells us that while he was in the garden, it says, Jesus being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I mean, that's when stress reaches to its highest peak where, where the blood vessels are breaking due to that stress and he's sweating great drops of blood. Being that servant of God, he was willing to go to the cross. He said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. But you can see the humanity in Jesus on that night. He said, Father, if there's a way for this cup to pass from me, Lord, take it from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so we see here the humanity of Jesus on that night. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. Now you can see why Jesus would think that or say that. I mean, we're told in John 1.11 that, uh, speaking of Jesus, that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. 
We're told in Matthew 26, 56, when they arrested Jesus, that all the disciples, they fled. They split the sea. And, and yet, uh, I could see how verse 4, speaking of Jesus' humanity, at that point could say, I've labored in vain. Yet we all know that he knew in his deity what the cross would accomplish. Because he goes on here, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. That, that's you. That's me. The reward of Jesus going through the cross was, was our salvation. We're saved. Hebrews 12.2 says that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, maybe you, maybe you feel like, you know, you've been abandoned. Maybe you feel like, like, you know, life is just unjust, like, like, like you've got the you know, straw into the deal, you know, uh, I mean, like life is not treating you fairly. Listen, God has wonderful blessings and rewards waiting for those who endure. And maybe this life, it may be the next life, but rest assured there is joy before you if you keep on keeping on, if you endure. Even if you're in this all alone, you're not in all alone, and there's joy in, in the Lord. I think that's what enabled Jesus to go through the torture and the crucifixion and the death. It can help us, you know, weather even the the toughest storms in our lives. Now look at verses 5 and 6. It says, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so what we see here is, is that the purpose of, of, of Jesus coming into the world, the purpose of his arrest, his torture, his crucifixion, as a servant of God, was to bring Jacob back to God. In other words, to, to restore the Jews into their right relationship with God, with the Creator. When Jesus came to accomplish this, he observed that the Jews were like sheep without a shepherd. Remember when he sent out the twelve apostles in Matthew chapter 10? Verses 5 and 6, he says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus' primary mission was to reach the Jews, to, to reach those, the, the, the Israel with salvation, with their Messiah. But that was too small. God had a bigger plan. God the Father wanted to show the whole world that the Messiah has come to offer salvation not only to the Jews, but you and I, you know, Gentile pagans alike. Verse 7, he goes on. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to, whom, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Jesus was despised at his first coming. Even today in our society, Jesus is despised. But he's not going to be despised at his second coming. They're going to worship. He's going to, he's going to be worshipped at his second coming. Now verses 8 through 12 speak of the millennial reign of Christ. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pasture shall be along desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. 
That, that brings me to mind Revelation chapter 7 and verse 16 where it says, They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Speaking again of the millennial reign of Christ. Verse 11, he goes on, I will make each of my mountains a road and my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west and, and these from the land of Sinem. Sinem is, is China. Again, I believe this is speaking of after the great tribulation period when during the millennial reign of Christ, Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the world and all the nations will come into Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Verse 13, Seeing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, Break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. In spite of the promises of God for their future, the Jews felt forsaken by the Lord. Now, this is very much like, like a child who's done wrong and they've gotten disciplined and they've gotten a spanking. Well, my mommy doesn't love me because she punished me and sent me to my room. Well, Israel was punished because it sent so many years and generations in disobedience and idolatry and immorality. But to say that God is done with Israel, that God doesn't love Israel, or that Jews is, is like saying a mom can't you know, can forget her baby. It just doesn't happen. God reassures them, I can no more forget you than a woman can forget her nursing child. Even if she does, he says, I'll never forget you. Just speaking of the faithfulness of God. Verse 16. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The word inscribed here is interesting. It's a Hebrew word, kakak, and it means to cut out or engrave. That kind of sounds like a, a you know, strange word for... for um, you know, a strange word to use in relation to your hand. But that's exactly what the Lord did when you think about it. Psalm 22, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, says, They pierced my hands and my feet. See, his wounds became the visual reminders of who Jesus is and what, what Jesus has done for us. Then when the Lord says concerning Israel, Your walls are continually before me. Again, it's his way of reassuring the Jews that, that listen, you guys are always on my mind. See, God doesn't miss any little detail and no subject is too boring for him for him to be aware of. I mean, don't you love that about our God? He doesn't get bored with us. He doesn't go, oh, you know, Tom, he just bores me. Bores me to death. I think I'm going to go pay attention to someone else. You know, boring. You know, God doesn't do that. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 6 and 7? Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. I mean, if God can pay attention to the little sparrows, you know, and, and count the number of your hair, hairs on your head, you know, for some of us, it's not a large number, but, 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 but he knows. He can take care of us. But the point is that, that God doesn't miss a thing. He's always paying attention to what's going on in our lives. It'll never leave us. And he'll never forsake us. And he knows what's going on. And, and he wants us to draw near to him. Because if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Now verse 7-21 through 21 we read, Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes. Look around and see. All these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourself with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. 
And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have after you've lost the others will stay again in your ears. The place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro? And who has brought these up there? I was There I was left alone, but these were where, where, where were they? So what, what God is saying here is that, that, that although He promises them that all the Jerusalem walls will fall because of judgment, they're going to be quickly rebuilt. And those who attacked them would be, would be gone and the land would be, be, that was destroyed would be repopulated again. Now, this is interesting because the regathering and the rebuilding of the nation of Israel has been very, a very remarkable thing in our day. I mean, next May 14, 2018, they'll be celebrating 60 years since Israel became a nation in 1948. Now, that's never happened ever. Any, any race of people that has not been together for, for thousands of years to suddenly join together as a nation once, once again, it's exciting because God fulfilled His promise. He brought them back into the land, just like He said He would. Now they're dwelling there. And they seek to expand. They say, as it says here in Isaiah, that the area that we have is too small. And if you look at Israel, it is small. Not much, not much even bigger than the, than the state of New Jersey. I read that you can actually drive from one side of Israel to the other in two hours, and you can drive from one end to the other in six hours. And that gives you the idea of how big Israel is. Two hours wide and six hours long driving in a car. So God speaks here that they're going to say, hey, we need to expand our borders. There's not enough room. Verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. Now, standard is a wooden pole with a cross piece that holds a symbol of a tribe or an army or royalty. You know, God, God here is saying he would lift up his hand to the nations and set up his standard. Well, what is God's standard? Well, to find that out, I think we need to go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. If you want to turn back to Numbers, chapter 21, you can, verses 6 through 9. I'll read it to you, but you might enjoy reading along with me. But Numbers, chapter 21. The Jews are complaining about manna. You know, the manna that came from heaven. Manna in the morning, manna in the evening, manna in the evening. You know, manna all day long, you know. And, you know, we get, you know... Manna burritos, manna cotti, manna this, manna that. You know, you get all this, this manna. And they're complaining. Listen to Numbers 21, 6 through 9. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So, so judgment came because they were complaining all the time, and, and, and so they're being bit by the serpents. God says to, to Moses, you, you make this pole, put this serpent on there, and have them look to the pole, and they'll be saved. Now Jesus would, would later references when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, when Jesus would say, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was saying, I'm going to be like that bronze serpent. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
But I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be lifted up. In the scripture, bronze is, is a metal which symbolizes judgment. And in the altar of sacrifice there in the temple, where, where, where sin was judged, that was made out of bronze. And we know when Jesus Christ returns to the earth to judge the world, he's described as having feet of burnished bronze. So, so judgment is symbolized by bronze, and the serpent is a symbol of sin. It was the way sin entered the world of Genesis. Would, you know, it was the way the Israelites sinned and was punished in the wilderness. So Moses had placed a representation of sin on this wooden standard across. Its purpose was so that all would look at that cross, or rather that cross that were bitten, could look in faith and be healed. So Jesus is saying his crucifixion, him being lifted up on the cross, his stands extended outward would be the same thing. Again, because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life to all that look to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as the Lord says here in verse 22 of Isaiah 49, he says, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. And he's done that. I believe he's given us a prophecy of the cross. He goes on in verse 22. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and the queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Again, I believe this speaks of of after the great tribulation, when during the millennial reign of Christ, Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the world. All the nations will come to, to, to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Now verse 24 goes on. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible will be delivered, for I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. God is saying, I'll fight with those that fight with you. So any nation, any people that opposes the Jews is not contending with the race of people, they're contending with the eternal God of heaven. In the same way, you know, as, as believers, you know, we may want to fight back or, or get revenge. And, and listen, God is our defense. He's the one that, that fights back. We don't need to, to fight back. In fact, he, you know, he says, I'll fight with those that fight with you. He'll, he'll take care of it. Verse 26, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. And they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now this kind of catapults us to Revelation chapter 16, verse 6. Speaking of the bold judgments, as God pours out His judgment uh, on, on, a, on a Christ-rejecting world. He says in Revelation 16, 6, For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it, it is their just due. So here we're, we get a glimpse of that. Now, chapter 50. Chapter 50, another great prophecy given concerning Jesus Christ, and and really, the humiliation that he would face from his own people. Look now at verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Now he's talking about Israel here. And so he goes on to say, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves. And for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Now under the Mosaic law, a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason. If, if he, you know, if she burnt the pancakes in the morning, it's a letter for divorce, I'm leaving you, you know. If, whatever, you should get a divorce. 
And cruel and heartless men would take advantage of that. Yet here God is saying to Israel, I've not given you a certificate of divorce. I've not left you. I've not given up on you. But it's you who have given up on me. You sold yourself. You left me. See what he's saying. You know, in the same way, when we sin, when we turn our backs on God, God has not left us. We left Him. And we need to repent and come back to Him. Love verse 2. Prophecies of the Lord Jesus first coming. Read in verse 2. Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth for their covering. So the Lord here is saying, you know, when I came, you were not ready to receive me. I mean, why when the time had come for you to meet your Messiah, you rejected me? Well, there was no answer. And the Lord is saying here, and you, and you won't trust me with redeeming you for your sin. I, the God who created the world you live in, who hath a word can drive the seas or can cause a river to run through the wilderness. I've come and you've rejected me. I mean, is that the same thing that we read in, in John 1, verse 10 and 11? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Speaking of Jesus. Isaiah goes on in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Again, this is speaking of Jesus being the servant of the Father. Remember what Jesus said in John 5, verse 30, I can of myself do nothing, as here I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And then again, as I quoted already, John 8, 29, And he who sent me is with me, the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And then here, the Lord says in Isaiah, I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And he goes on in verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. That could be none other than Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. We're told in Scripture that, that Pilate had Jesus scourged. Scourging is what uh, took place. That they would take 39 stripes laid across the back of a prisoner with this whip that they called a cat of nine tails. And in that whip, this leather whip with this bits of cut glass and lead embedded in that and would just rip open the flesh of the person being scourged. And the purpose of the scourging was to bring about a confession from the prisoner that might clear up and, and confess his crime. Now, a few scourges onto the back of a, of a, of a, you know, a prisoner, anybody would confess, even the hardest criminals. And the idea was that with each confession, with the next stripe coming down on the person, it would be less and less, not as hard, if you confessed your sin or your crime. It would sort of encourage the confession. Now, if you refuse to confess uh, your crime, then each strike of the whip would be harder and harder to encourage confession. Isaiah 53.7 tells us that, that Jesus was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus had no crimes to confess. He took all 39 stripes laid across his back. Isaiah here tells us in verse 6 that Jesus' beard was plucked from his face, and they didn't hide his face when they spit on him and shouted blasphemies against him. 
Remember in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 64, it says, And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Now when you, you know, can see a blow coming, you have certain natural reflexes. You know, you can deflect the blow. You're, you're more or less, you can prepare for it a little bit you know, by pulling your head back when you see it coming. Our bodies are, are marvelously coordinated, you know. You, you can walk up and down a curb as long as you're watching where you're going. But man, if you get off a little bit, you know, if you're not watching where you're going, you, you go off that curb and it jars your body. Whoa, you know, and you almost fall down. If you've ever done that, I've done that before. But, but Jesus, Jesus took every blow to his face without knowing when it was coming or where it was coming from. He t- took it all. Now, Isaiah chapters 50 through 53 really begin and ends with the humiliation and the crucifixion of Christ. We're getting just just the beginning of it here in chapter 50. We'll get to chapter 53, verse 3, where it reads, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Listen, Jesus was not a pretty picture when he redeemed you from sin. His face was bloody It was a bloated mass, swollen, distorted beyond recognition. He was covered in spit. His back was laid open by the beating, a crown of thorns placed on his head. He's standing there before Pilate. Pilate says, behold the man. But you can even recognize that he was a man. And yet, he endured it. He did not turn away, though he could at any time. Why? Again, Hebrews 12, 2. And who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Though he despised the spitting, as you or I would, and the shame of the whole thing, he despised it. But he endured it because his love for you was stronger than anything else. And the joy of being able to to wash you and redeem you and to cleanse you from all your sins was the thing that kept him going in that moment of disgrace. I shared this Sunday evening out at the park that, that it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love for you and his love for me that kept him there. Jesus could have said at any time, I'm done, I'm not doing this. And we never would have been delivered from our sin. But he didn't, and, 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 and he saved us. Isaiah goes on, look at verse 7. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has the light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. I love that. Jesus would would trust the Father even when the sky turned dark and it seemed he had been forsaken. The light of the world would trust the Father even in the darkness of the tomb. Finally, verse 11, Isaiah refers to a little pagan ceremony that the Jews would do. He says in verse 11, Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This, this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So, after speaking all what, what Jesus will do and what Jesus has done, this last little verse here, uh, he speaks to these guys that are they're still following after false gods. Those that have gone out worshiping idols and, and the Lord said, man, you're bringing upon yourself destruction. You're going to go down in torment and in sorrow. 
unless you repent, unless you turn from your sin, that, that is what is left, torment. Now, as we close, I don't know how a Jewish person can read these scriptures and not recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't know how anybody who's, who's not a, a believer can deny the prophecy of Jesus Christ or the fulfillment of Jesus Christ of these prophecies. I mean, He is our Redeemer, our Lord. I just praise God that He's opened up our eyes to see what Jesus has done for us so that we can live for Him and do those things that please Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for tonight, Lord. And we thank You that, Lord, this is the night that we can look to the cross. Lord, we can see what Your Son did for us upon that cross, Lord. And as we look to Him, as we confess our sin, Lord, You are faithful, You are just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, You've set that standard. Standard, Lord, is, is to live, in, in, live perfectly without sin, Lord. But we've all broken that standard. But You've made a way, Lord. And I just pray right now, if there's anybody here they are struggling with sin, they're... they're, they're just fall into that, Lord, that we would just look to you, Lord. That we would turn from that sin, Lord. Not because that you say that it's wrong, Lord, though your word says it's wrong, but because it displeases you, Lord God. We want to do those things that please you, not displease you, Lord. So we, we turn from our sin and we took to, look to you, Lord God. We look to the cross. We look to what you've done for us upon that cross. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the cleansing power of your blood to wash away every sin that we've ever committed. Thank you for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.